welcome to The Path and the Practice, a podcast dedicated to sharing the professional origin stories of the attorneys at Foley and Lardner LLP, a full-service law firm with over 1,000 lawyers and 24 offices across the U.S. and abroad. I'm your host, Alexis Robertson, Director of Diversity and Inclusion at Foley. In each episode of this podcast, you'll hear me interview a different Foley attorney through our one-on-one, candid conversations, you'll learn about each guest's unique background, path to law school, and path to Foley and Lardner. Essentially, you'll hear the stories you won't find on their professional bio, stories of obstacles and triumphs, with some funny moments in between. And of course, you'll learn a bit about their practice. Now, let's get to the episode. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. In this episode of The Path and the Practice, I speak with Jack Lord. Jack is a partner in the Labor and Employment Group of Foley's Miami office. This is an interesting episode because we spend more time talking about the practice than the path. As you'll hear, Jack has been practicing at Foley and Lardner for the past 25 years. Jack spent some time reflecting on what it was like to be a junior associate during the mid to late 90s when a number of new labor and employment laws were being passed, and what a busy time it was in L&E. Jack also reflects on what it has been like to be an out gay man in a law firm, and the progress that he's seen the profession make in terms of LGBT rights. Finally, I get Jack to open up a bit about his yoga practice. Jack is a devotee of Ashtanga yoga. He shares about that and he comments on why it's so important for attorneys to make sure to focus on their well-being. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hi, Jack. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Alexis. How are you? I am great. I'm so happy to have you here. And I know we were just taking a moment to chat before we started the recording. And what I just said and what I'd like to have you do is give everyone your quick professional summary, that summary you give when you are at a professional event or you're on a panel and you have that moment to introduce yourself professionally. How do you do that? I tell folks that I'm a labor and employment attorney for companies. I have to stress that part because they hear labor and employment and they want to jump right to their own employment things. So I say, I'm a labor and employment attorney for companies. And to emphasize that, I say, I'm a partner at a corporate law firm. (laughs) And we assist companies, we defend claims, so I do actual litigation work, but I also counsel companies in their labor relations and employee relations issues. I really love how you just described that. I can tell it's from a lot of experience back to the, can you help me with my issue at work? So you start companies (laughs) at a law firm. (laughs) (laughs) That's hysterical. Thank you so much for that. And one of the reasons I wanted you to share that is because what I want to do is walk up to how you got here, how it is you became a labor and employment lawyer for companies. And then I will say, you know, as someone who's been a partner at Foley Lardner for 25 years, we're also going to spend more time on the practice part. I know this podcast is called The Path and the Practice. This is one where I think we're going to talk a little bit more about the practice. But I would love to start with, you know, where are you from? Where did you grow up? I was born in Orlando, Florida, just before the mouse opened his house there. So grew up in a city that grew around me. Then I went to the University of Florida undergrad. So Gainesville is not too, too far, a couple hours north of Orlando, and then went to Duke Law School. And in between, I lived in D.C. 
And when I came back to Foley, I graduated law school in 1994. So I, I started at Foley's Orlando office. At the time, the firm was saying, we're going to get a Miami office soon. And that didn't happen too soon. But when it did happen, I, I came down here to Miami. So you quickly went to Miami, or rather when you got a chance to. And I'm actually going to unpack this a little bit. One, because you did refer to Disney and Orlando before Disney. And I'm actually a big fan of Disney World. So I just have to ask, do you have memories of sort of watching this grow around you as you were growing up? Well, okay. So technically I was born before it opened, but it opened not too long after I was. So I was an infant and able to, you know, go to Disney early on as a child. Disney itself is, the property is pretty far from where I grew up. So that's kind of something people think about. I I grew up, you know, looking at the Magic Kingdom and it's not true. (laughs) It's almost an hour to get to like to the actual Magic Kingdom itself from where I lived. I lived north in a suburb just north of Orlando. So that's interesting. I'm sorry. I just had to ask. Well, all right. So you, you covered college, you jumped to law school. Did you know you wanted to be a lawyer? When did, when was that seed planted? When I was undergrad, I was an English major, which I knew right from the get-go, probably from my AP English teacher. And I just knew I loved English, wanted to keep studying it. And and I did waver a little while. Did I want to continue to get my PhD and teach or law school? But I landed on law school pretty early on in undergrad. And as I, I always mention this, I look everybody up on LinkedIn. That's just how I work. Did you apply to law school straight, like while still an undergrad and you went straight through or was there any time in between those two? So I graduated undergrad early. So I I did it in three and a half years and therefore I had that gap, right? So about eight month gap. So in between, I did move to Washington, D.C. I did an internship with a congressman and I also worked at Dulles Airport. That's really interesting. Well, I have to ask, what did you do at the airport? (laughs) I worked for a contractor. I was mostly a passenger service agent, so checking people in. La Deco was the airline. It was a Chilean airline. It's Lawn Chile. It's Lawn now. So I speak Spanish and help check people into their flight to Santiago. <laughs> well, now I have to ask, did you learn Spanish in school? How was it that you became Spanish-speaking? Yes, I was. Besides an English major, I was a Spanish minor and always loved Spanish I did go to Spain undergrad, you know, studied over there and actually working at La Deco was really, it cemented me being able to speak Spanish and it comes in handy every day here in Miami. I can only imagine, right, then you move to Miami and it works out quite well. Yes. (laughs) Okay, so you go to law school. Now, there may be some highlights to share from law school, but I am interested to jump to how Foley and Lardner, why Foley and Lardner? I guess I I knew I was going to come back to Orlando. I thought about some other cities, even Miami a little bit, but I I landed on coming back to Orlando where my family was at the time, where they still are. You know, there's not that many national law firms. There's about four or five. I was a summer associate my first year at Foley. And then second summer, I split between Foley and another local Orlando headquartered law firm, Gray Robinson is called. And I liked the national practice and I felt good. I do remember in my first summer at Foley going up to Summer Fest, I think it's called in Milwaukee. That's right. First off, I was freezing, even though it was June and we went to a 
baseball game and I had to go buy a long sleeve because <laughs> literally it was in the 50s. I believe you. I'm from Milwaukee. I grew up there. I, I, I was there probably that 94. So. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't believe they called it Summerfest and it was in the 50s. But during that weekend with summer associates from the cross country, I remember we had a training on harassment and anti-discrimination issues and they did not mention sexual orientation. And I brought that up with the summer coordinator, I remember she was a partner in the Jacksonville office, and it quickly changed. There was no pushback on changing it, but it did surprise me that it wasn't in there. But also, I did appreciate that once I brought it to somebody's attention, it was fixed quickly. Now, I know why that would be something you would focus on. But, you know, for the listeners who aren't familiar, you know, with you and that you're co-chair of Foley's LGBTQA affinity group and really have just been... I would say a catalyst within the firm and within the broader kind of movement within the profession. You know, if you'd like to to share a little bit about who you are personally and why that was so important to you and should be important to others. Yeah, I'm a gay man and the firm has always known that from when I was initially hired as a first year summer associate. So being out and being able to be out was always important to me. In law school itself, I was I became the president of the now they call them outlaw groups, but back then it was a horrible acronym, COGLI, Committee on Gay and Lesbian Legal Issues. Very terrible name. But we did the same type of work as current outlaw groups do. Not that, frankly, I was so comfortable that I put that on my resume, which is kind of interesting. This was, after all, the early 90s. And while people were coming out much more professionally, it still wasn't that. It's a different time. Typical. It was a very different time. People knew at Foley that I was gay and that was very important to me. And then, you know, when I came in the summers and then obviously as a first year, even I felt accepted. And and so again, that's another reason I came to Foley. So I want to ask more about that, but I do want to back up and ask you, how was it you decided that labor employment was the practice area for you? So 94 is the year I'm, I graduate and I went into general litigation. I I wasn't slotted in Orlando. You know, we just went into general litigation. So I was doing everything, commercial litigation, construction, some bankruptcy, obviously some labor and employment. And I quickly gravitated to the labor and employment. It's definitely interesting factually, but also it's a very cool and interesting area of the law. And the Civil Rights Act of 1991 had been passed obviously just prior. So in a lot of labor and employment, there are administrative requirements before you go to court. You have to file with the EEOC, for example. So a lot of those charges were making their way through the administrative process and into court. And in 1994-95, when I'm starting to do labor and employment, there is a lot of work along with the the fact that so that law in 91 had allowed people to get jury trials for the first time these discrimination cases and also allowed for different damages like punitive damages and pain and suffering type damages. So, you know, it was definitely a bigger deal. Plaintiff's attorneys were much more willing to take these cases on. Right. And at the same time, they didn't know how, frankly, neither side knew how to value them very well. So settlements were not common. And I actually tried a ton of cases throughout the nineties and early two thousands, mostly federal jury trials got tons of experience that way, which was great. And also just, it's it's a super fun area of the law. 
That's amazing. That's a really interesting story that I did not appreciate. So as you know, I was a, an employment lawyer for a little while, for about a month and a half. <laughs> most of my practice, not a month and a half, sorry, a year and a half after the six years as a general commercial lawyer where I did do some employment work. But when you were saying that you got to do a ton of jury trials that early on within, it sounds like that first, what, six to eight years, but definitely the first 10 years of your practice, that's tremendous because that just doesn't, that's not easy to do right now in, in the current environment. Yeah. And on top of, I mentioned the Civil Rights Act had changed, but the ADA had been passed in 1990, the FMLA in 1992. So it was just an era of tons of legislation, all new. And so creating case law, case law was just brand new. You know, there obviously had been cases, but but it hadn't been, these laws hadn't been looked at so much by the plaintiff's bar because there just frankly weren't that many incentives. Yes, you could get attorney's fees, but it, it just the damages weren't that great beforehand and things like that, no jury trial. So it was a much bigger deal, really fun, and constantly creating new law, helping create new law. It was really fun. Wow, what an amazing time to start your career as an employment attorney. And then I do want to ask, when did you transfer from Orlando to the Miami office of Foley? I think it's going on 10 years now. I actually bought a place in Miami Beach, and so I was going back and forth. I was married, and my husband at the time and I would come back and forth. He, he could work from home. And so we'd work alternating weeks. It started at in, in Orlando and Miami, and then, then it became mostly Miami. And then when actually I got a divorce, then I was entirely Miami. <laughs> well, and that segues back to what I wanted to ask you about with you know working at Foley as an out attorney. So I have read an American Lawyer article about you from last year titled, I'm not going to hide who I am, attorney John Jack Lord Jr. champions LGBTQ rights. And there's a portion in there where you share an experience of, I believe, I'm not sure if it was a client, but someone pointing to your a, a ring and asking if you were married and you sharing that your partner gave you this. Now, I was wondering if you could share that story or share more about experiences you had navigating practice as an, an out gay lawyer. Yeah, so that story from that article is from the 90s. It's not too long after I had started practicing law. And the client, I actually tried a ton of cases for them. And their main HR person, Kathy, I had worked with her for, for you know, a couple, going on a couple years. And, and my partner at the time gave me a ring. It is the 90s. So at that point, you know, there is no marriage equality. But he had given me a ring. So I was wearing it and Kathy asked me, oh, did you get married? And I said, well, no, because, you know, that was not legally allowed at the time. But my partner gave it to me and she had a quizzical look on her face, you know, and I didn't quite know where that would lead. It wasn't like a moment where she started then, you know, asking me a whole bunch of questions or, you know, like a, a total connection was made, but it also was not a, a bad moment. This was a time, so interestingly, I, you know, being out to the firm didn't mean that I was comfortable being out to all clients, and I didn't know how that would affect my me as a professional, right? And depending on the reaction of somebody, like, you know, Kathy, if it, it ended up not being a big deal, but, you know, I was loath to always tell clients back then. That's not the way I mostly feel today. I will say that the closet has a really bad way of 
trying to pull you in periodically, no matter how long you've been around and how much experience you have, the closet will kind of whisper over my shoulder sometimes, hey, be careful, right? Come back here, come be safe in here kind of thing. I loathe the closet. The closet is something I think is highly, highly detrimental to LGBTQ people. I understand why it exists. I understand why people are scared, but I think that the more you can put it behind you, the more definitely you're going to be a happier person. And I also think that as a whole for society to see that we're not willing to go back there, we're not scared, we're not ashamed. To change who you are, to hide who you are. Exactly. That That is an extremely important message. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think it is interesting because now we're in this time that – I have to be careful how I say this because I realize there are still people in terms of public sentiment, you know, who, you know, disagree, but there has been this cultural shift within, I'm not sure, maybe we'll call it the last five to 10 years. And so to reflect on what that time was like, particularly for, you know, from the legal profession for people that are, are younger who may not consider what it was like navigating then before it was more clear that it was, you know, mostly okay. But even then you did mention that, I don't want to call it the allure of the closet. That's not correct, quite right. I think you said the whisper of the closet. And just to make sure I'm understanding, it's just that idea of maybe it's easier not to mention this, or maybe it's easier for me to hide a part of who I am. Is that is that how it presents, can present itself? Yes. And I'm always of the mindset, I'm never going to lie, but you know, you can carefully omit certain things that might naturally you, you say. So it's easy enough for a client to ask you on a Monday morning, how was your week and what did you do? And then you can carefully describe it without mentioning that you were with your husband or partner. You know, there's ways that you kind of dance around certain things that might naturally fall out of a straight person's mouth. You would say, oh, my my husband and my kids and I went, blah, blah, blah. And you just might say, I went, you know, and kind of for, omit the other part. Right. And that's, that's, again, the closet. It's still, unfortunately, there for every single gay person, I think, in America. A little bit, you know, yeah, no matter how out you are, I think at times it even just the pause, it might come out of your mouth, but the pause is is indicative that the closet is still there. Absolutely. Within um, diversity and inclusion, you know, we'll often talk about just the energy it takes to essentially cover to be something other than who you are. And there's an exercise, and maybe you've seen it done at, you know, allyship sort of presentations, but where you ask participants to turn to the person next to them and describe their weekend without using the pronoun of their partner. Okay. Are they able to tell you back to what you said? So for me, this weekend, my husband and I, we planted a garden and then we did this and then we did that. So imagine me trying to explain that without, and for someone who's never gone through that exercise, it often can be really eye-opening where they think it actually took a lot of my mental energy to omit that or to change it. And it gives you just a tiny little peek at how that siphons energy from people when they can't be their full self in the workplace, right? Because that's yep. energy you could have put towards your client work, <laughs> your whatever it may be, but just a little bit. And it may seem like it doesn't happen a lot, but it happens enough where it, it really takes a tremendous toll. So I appreciate you for sharing that because I think it's a dynamic that for someone who hasn't had to hide any aspect of who they are, they don't necessarily realize the the toll it takes on people. Yep, exactly. It is very it's draining. draining and stressful. 
do you find that at this point you're able to, I mean, I, I, would, I would imagine it maybe to a point where you're able without second guessing to kind of just say what you did, or do you still find that you need to be intentional to occasionally not withhold or how do you judge that? I would say like, you know, mostly I don't even think about it, but there are moments when I will, I mean, I'm a guardian ad litem for children, abused and neglected children. And sometimes just in the first instances anyway, I'm sometimes not so forthcoming about the fact that, you know, I have a boyfriend and it just, you know, sometimes it, yeah, it does. I check myself. It just comes up every once in a while. And I dare say it's not ever going to completely go away. When I'm in an old folks home, I might have some reason not to tell the personal assistant who's caring for me, you know, just out of maybe some hesitation of homophobia. Think, you know, unfortunately. Yeah, that makes sense that that would always be there. And I did mention that you are one of the co-chairs of the firm's LGBTQA affinity group, which I think is one of the firm's most robust affinity groups. And I would be curious if you could share a little bit about the formation and organization of that group and um, any other highlights that are worth sharing about it. Yeah, so I definitely helped form it. In the 90s, we did not have full benefits parity for LGBTQ Foley employees. And I remember first asking for those <laughs> in the in the 90s. At the time, it would have been domestic partner benefits only, right? Because there was no marriage equality. So it was somewhat, you know, progressive for organizations to, at the time, let's say 94, 95, give domestic partner benefits. That was not the norm. And I do remember that I asked Foley and the first answer was no. And I didn't like the answer. And I asked and I, I provided information and I checked around and the firm did after a, a couple years, I think it took two or so, provide domestic partner benefits. This was for same-sex couples only at the time. Now we have domestic partner benefits, you know, regardless of gender pairing. And with that big request, and you know, it was a big request, but it was very important, right? The firm also had to do some learning, just like, you know, the first time I asked just to add sexual orientation. And at the time, we weren't at all focused on gender identity or expression. It just wasn't part of the, the vernacular, as it has become, and, and rightfully so. After that request, I, I, I frankly don't remember where or when in time the affinity group formed, but it first started as the LGBT and I remember, I remember a discussion about what it was going to be called because Eileen Ridley and I were the first co-chairs and still are the co-chairs. And there was, at the time, kind of a east of the Mississippi, west of the Mississippi vernacular. And west coast was LGBT and east coast was GLBT. And obviously LGBT has won out. and that's, I have not heard GLBT. Thank you for yeah. sharing that. That's history. <laughs> There's some organizations still with that because they just haven't changed their names, but it used to be that. And I, I just remember that. So this was, again, probably in the 90s, maybe late 90s by this point, and we formed. And over the years, we've, you know, added, I remember adding the letter Q, and that was a mm -hmm. bit uncomfortable, even for me at the time. But that was something that, you know, had it, the community had progressed to using that term, queer, and then we also added allies, and that was a discussion too, because no other affinity groups within the firm had ally members. 
we did, there was actually some thought of not adding allies. And I think it probably was the most important thing we could have done because for reasons I can talk about later, allies have really, really, really helped us. Well, feel free if you'd like to talk about them now. You can share a bit about that. Sure. So allies really became important for our affinity group during the time frame in which marriage equality was still being litigated, highly, highly litigated. Obviously, before Obergefell, and when the Supreme Court found that marriage equality is a constitutional right, there were many, many battles throughout the states, throughout the federal courts. There were, unfortunately, instances in which people were voting out my rights, putting into the state constitutions that I expressly could not vote. There was a very sad moment I had when I was a poll watcher in 2008. President Obama won at the polling place I attended, which was a predominantly African-American neighborhood. He won, let's say, by 90-something percent. And then on the same ballot, which I saw the printout for, I saw that my rights were also being taken away by the people who had voted at this polling place by, because they put on into the Florida Constitution an, an amendment prohibiting same-sex marriage, and that won by nearly the same amount. And I, I was very disheartened by that fact. No, I can completely understand why that's quite the contrast and contradictory in so many yeah. ways. So during this time frame, when, when these constitutional amendments are being put on, obviously there's lots of litigation. And the firm took on a representation in the Washington, D.C. area representing some preachers from PG County, and they were anti-marriage equality. And it came to our attention, the affinity group's attention, that the firm was representing this anti-marriage equality group. Not only did it come to our attention, but it also came to the attention of national groups, national LGBT groups, like Human Rights Campaign. And the firm got incredible pushback for this, <laughs> both from us internally mm -hmm. and then from external sources, such as the Human Rights Campaign. There was a lot of discussion. Senior management did not readily concede that taking on a representation like this was something that the firm should not do. Eventually, in this is where the allies come in, allies were part of our affinity group by this point, and we had very vocal and very smart allies helping us to argue our case to management that if the firm is espousing that LGBTQ people are equal, that we deserve the same rights as our straight peers, that in the workplace we should be treated fairly, but that similarly we should be treated fairly in society, that the firm should not be taking on a representation to do away with such a fundamental right fundamental constitutional right as the right to marry. Eventually, the firm did come to a policy, it was kind of a neutrality policy, where neither side was allowed to mm -hmm. take on a representation. I will say I wasn't completely satisfied with that because at this point, many big law firms who we consider peers were representing pro-marriage equality. They were not neutral, right? Were not neutral. And so that made me sad but at least we were no longer representing 
entities or litigants who were trying to take away yep. my personal constitutional rights. Yep. I appreciate you expanding on that and sharing that. And also, I imagine that this podcast, in addition to having, you know, people from Foley and Lardner listen, we have the opportunity to share it with recruits or, you know, those outside of the firm. And I was just wondering, because there's a couple other things I want to hit on before we, we wrap up today. Do you have general advice to that, you know, out or closeted LGBTQ law student who's looking at navigating a law firm career and is wondering, will I be welcome? But what advice do you have for them? Yeah, first and foremost, make sure nowadays it is on your resume. Unlike when I was going through the recruiting process in the early 90s and I didn't put it on, nowadays it is so common for firms to have affinity groups like ours. It's just, it is a better work environment and a better society, frankly, for LGBTQ people now. And you just want to know if you get dinged by a firm because you have your outlaw group on there, that's not a place you want to work in. You don't want to be there. That's right. So be out on your resume. I do encourage law students to be very active with their outlaw or whatever similar LGBT group they have at school because you're going to get good connections that way. These are people that are going to go on to different firms and potentially become clients. Certainly you can have good friendships this way. And then starting to become involved with LGBTQ pro bono activities. You can do that through Lambda Legal or other groups. I think that's important as well. That's really, really great advice. I appreciate that. And then as I mentioned before we started the recording, totally switching gears, but something we have to talk about. I wanted to talk about your yoga practice. Sure. And let me set this up a little bit, which is that when I first heard about this. You'd mentioned that it was something you had incorporated. I can't remember if it was in the last five to 10 years, but you'd mentioned that you realized you needed it in order to continue being the lawyer, like this hard, you know, hard driving lawyer that you were. And I would just love if you could talk a bit about how you learned of it, the relationship between keeping yourself healthy for, you know, so you can practice and and just the role it plays in your life. Yeah. Something I'll I'll start by saying is anybody who is a hard driving professional needs to incorporate some form of exercise into your life because otherwise, I mean, it's a profession, especially law fraught with mental health issues. And that is truly a very solid scientifically proven way to, to help balance those things out. I had done yoga uh, periodically over the years, you know, go to the gym, sometimes go to yoga classes, but Foley actually, this is going six years back now, brought for a wellness program, a yoga teacher to our Miami office. And we were doing that twice a week with her. And I got into that routine and I, and I also realized, hey, this is helping. It's making me feel better physically and mentally. And so I looked up just on something online near where I live in Miami Beach. And I, I found a yoga studio with an interesting sounding type of yoga that I'd never heard of called Ashtanga. And Ashtanga turns out to be the hardest type of yoga. I started going there first to supplement what was happening in the office and then to completely replace it because Ashtanga is a practice that you do five or six days per week, alternating weeks. And it's very intense, but it's also, it fits me. It's it's a very structured type of practice. And it really changed my life. 
at the time I was, I, I had some, you know, some forms of mild depression, certainly anxiety, and I had been prescribed certain medications for those. And within less than six months, I was completely off medication. That's amazing. And haven't had to look back, fortunately. And so, you know, both depression and anxiety are issues that are very common, especially at big law, but with practicing attorneys in general. And so the yoga itself is just amazing. And I, I, I could go on and on and on. I, I love my yoga. I love my yoga teacher. It's such a great thing in these COVID times as well, because it's something I get up and I can do immediately after getting up in the morning. I do, I have a morning practice. It starts before the sun comes up. And so, you know, well before eight o'clock, I've already done an hour and a half to an hour and 45 minutes of yoga and starts my day really nicely. That's fantastic. I really appreciate you sharing about that. As I've, I've told you, I have some relatively nerdy health and wellness leanings. So I really appreciate it when I find other people who are the same, but what you said about lawyers and the profession and really needing to find something to balance to help with all of the things that I think attorneys are predisposed to because of, I think, how we're wired and also sometimes what the lifestyle and firm can be is really, really important. One thing I will share that I've learned over the years is oftentimes people who are really back to the hard driving type A, a lot of times we will decompress with extremely hard workouts. <laughs> and it's interesting because I think I would guess that with your workout, it is intense, but intense maybe in a way that's different from, say, something like a HIT training where you're going to run as fast as you can for you know, 90 minutes. It's, it's a different type of intensity. So I just find that really interesting that, and also it's amazing that in six months you felt so different. Yeah, That's remarkable. The one other thing, question I have about the practice is in addition to the physical practice, as I know yoga is a much, you know, a part of a much broader tradition, are there other tenants or is Ashtanga primarily focused on the physical movement aspect? Well, Ashtanga itself means it, it's Sanskrit for eight limbs. So there actually are seven other limbs. The asana is, is the third limb. Asana is the physical practice. So you can hear that, yes, there's a lot more to yes. Ashtanga yoga than the asana practice. The asana practice briefly is designed to cleanse your body and make it well so that you can do the other tenets of yoga including, you know, meditation and breathing, both of which I do incorporate into my physical asana practice, but also outside. So I do separate meditation. The firm even provides a tool I, I use, the Calm app, and I have a daily meditation practice. But actually, the asana itself is called a moving meditation. And so there's breathing and, and meditation going on throughout my entire practice. So yes, great question. There are seven other limbs, not just the asana. Well, I remember when you first told me about it, I looked it up. And as soon as you said that, I was reminded that I, I read about that. And actually, I too have a meditation practice that was maybe about two and a half years ago. It's a Vedic meditation. So it's similar to transcendental. Wow. I think it's great that the firm and so many other law firms are offering those sorts of resources. Yeah. But I noticed we're getting close to our time. So I wanted to pause and just ask, was there anything else that we didn't cover that you'd like to share before we wrap up? I've been rewarded, I think, being able to, in, in addition to the co-chair leadership for the Affinity Group, being co-chair for the National Labor and Employment Practice Group. And what I really 
enjoy about it. We've always been a very close-knit group, and it's a wonderful team. But being able to co-chair it with, with Dan Kaplan out of the Madison office, we've really been able to focus on bringing the team even closer together. We all have worked for similar goals. We, we want to increase the amount of clients we have, billings. Numbers like that are, are very important. But I think you can do all that and build a huge camaraderie. And that has been super, super rewarding. I'm really going on this is, and it's back to the firm. I've been here over 25 years now for a reason. And that's because we do great, cool work. It's super challenging in a good way. Sometimes not not a good way, but usually a good way. And yet we also get to work with people who, who really care about each other. And that comes out loud and clear with something like the affinity group with our allies and the LGBTQ lawyers, how we treat each other and and help each other. And then also just outside that context with my practice group, it's just, it's an amazing feeling. It makes me really proud. I also appreciate you sharing that because in my over six months or so at the firm, I've started to get a little bit of a taste of that camaraderie. And I can attest to the fact that it is very much there and it is fantastic. Well, Jack, thanks so much for being on the podcast. If people have questions and would like to reach out to you, what is the best way to find you? On the Foley website, foley.com, and then type my name in, and you can see my Miami number, my email address, and please reach out. Thanks so much, Jack. Thank you for listening to The Path and the Practice. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and join us again next time. And if you did enjoy it, please share it, subscribe, and leave us a review as your feedback on the podcast is important to us. Also, please note that this podcast may be considered attorney advertising and is made available by Foley and Lardner LLP for informational purposes only. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship. Any opinions expressed herein do not necessarily reflect the views of Foley and Lardner LLP, its partners, or its clients. Additionally, this podcast is not meant to convey the firm's legal position on behalf of any client, nor is it intended to convey specific legal advice.